The text this morning is from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 31 and 32. These are the words of God. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Our gracious God and Father, we now gather around your word and we pray that your Holy Spirit would be pleased to work in our hearts so that we would see the exact places that you would have us apply these words. Father, I pray that no one would come out of this service with any uh, fogged ambiguity operating. I pray that we'd all know what you called us to. We pray in Jesus' name, and amen. amen. The message this morning is on real Forgiveness. I thought we, we could use with an academic topic. Everyone knows that the Christian faith revolves around the forgiveness of sins. But because there's a gospel logic involved in this, and not just uh, Aristotelian logic, gospel logic, the first, become, or the first or last and the last first, that kind of logic, because there's a gospel logic involved in this that eludes every form of carnal reasoning, we have to be careful to understand what's actually involved. What is real forgiveness? What does it mean to receive forgiveness? What does it mean to extend forgiveness? So let's consider the text. There are two ways of conducting life together. One is the enemy of life together, so we should not call it the way of conducting life together, but rather the way of attempting to conduct life together, but always blows apart. So this is the enemy of life together. The other way is the true friend of life together. One drives apart and the other knits us together. One explodes things and the other knits things together. The way that explodes families and churches and denominations and workplaces and businesses, partnerships, friendships is the way of keeping score with the intention of winning. Keeping score with the intention of winning. It is the way of bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, and malice. That's one. That's verse 30, 31. This all sounds pretty bad, but we have to remember that all of these plug uglies travel under an alias. We're Christians, and so we don't call these things those names. We call them something else. So people who are in the grip of this call themselves righteous. And they have a deep commitment to being right. And this approach makes koinonia community impossible. So the devil has a problem, and that pro you might say, well, of course, the devil has a problem. He's the devil. But his central problem is that he is self-righteous. The central problem the devil has is that he thinks he's right. And that's because his uh, standard is his own mind, his own, the way he sees that, the way he sees the world, the way he sees things is righteous by definition. And that's the way to find yourself at odds with everyone and everything. The alternative here is kindness and tenderheartedness. Kindness and tenderheartedness, verse 32. And the way that kindness, that, and the way that the kindness and tenderheartedness live out is by forgiving one another forgiving one another, and doing so in exactly the same way that God has forgiven us for the sake of Jesus Christ. 
So there's one template, which is malice, bitterness, clamor, strife, scratching their eyes out. That's one way. And, but, and of course, you don't call it by a negative name. What you do is you call it by uh, the principle of the thing. Or, uh, but, I'm, but this is the, this is the central issue, I tell you, and, and so on. We call it by other names. And then there is kindness and tenderheartedness. Now, I, I pointed out in the first service that this verse, verse 32, was the first, if not one of the, it was one of the first, if not the first verse I ever memorized as a child. Um, I memorized it not because I was a godly little boy, but because my mother quoted this verse all the time. <laughs> there was a pack of little kids, and she would say constantly, be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving. That was her favorite verse, I think. Or perhaps another verse that was her favorite was from Numbers when Moses was speaking to the people, and he said, be, sur be sure your sin will find you out. That was also one of my first memory verses. Be, be sure your sin will find. Looking at our family, um, I, I suspect our kids' first Bible verse memorized was, depart from me, ye workers of iniquity. <laughs> because that's what Nancy quoted all the time. <laughs> so, be kind one to another, tenderhearted. We've heard it a lot. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Uh, but what does it boil down to? It boils down to forgiving one another. And that means we need to know what forgiveness is. What is it and what it isn't? What are the substitutes that we offer in instead of real forgiveness? And what does that real forgiveness look like? More importantly, what does it taste like? What does forgiveness taste like? What's the aroma of real forgiveness? We often feel like we are asking God for his forgiveness when what we are really doing is we are asking him to accept our excuses. This is what forgiveness is not. It is not forgiveness, seeking forgiveness from God, is not asking God to accept your excuses. And because we know that we're to forgive others as we were forgiven, as per the text, we often seek to forgive others by agreeing beforehand to accept their excuses whenever possible. But unlike ourselves, they better have a good one. So, uh, but we have this rough treaty worked out. Look, uh, the, we often bump into each other. I'll accept your excuses if you accept my excuses. That is a patchwork job. That's not going to hold anything together for long. It's, it's a jury-rigged repair. So you accept their, their excuses, they accept your excuses, and we stagger on together. But asking others to accept your excuses or accepting other people's excuses is not the way of forgiveness. Our problem is that when living together with other sinners, we frequently run smack into what can only be called inexcusable. What do you do if your whole method of getting along is to accept excuses and then somebody up and does something inexcusable? It can't be excused. There's no excuse for it. And because it's inexcusable, our scheme with the excuses doesn't work. Or suppose you do something that's inexcusable, and every excuse you frame, everything you come up with, just sounds incredibly lame, because what you did was inexcusable. Well, you're looking for an excuse to cover it, but what you need is forgiveness to deal with it. Not an excuse to cover it, but forgiveness to deal with it. Forgiveness deals with sin. And sin by its very nature, is inexcusable. 
Sin, if, if, if excuses could cover sin, then Jesus didn't have to die. If, if excuses could deal with sin, then when Jesus prayed in the garden, is there any way for this cup to pass from me? God could have said, well, excuses will do it. Good excuses will do it. Creative excuses will do it. You don't have to go to the cross. The reason Jesus had to go to the cross is because sin is inexcusable. But sin is not unforgivable. Those, those, are, those are not identical uh, conditions. You have done something inexcusable, but that doesn't mean it's unforgivable. Forgiveness deals with sin. And sin by its very nature, sin by definition, the thing that makes sin sinful is the fact that it's inexcusable. So what's inexcusable is not, thank the Lord, unforgivable. So let's make a, a few distinctions. One, the first distinction I want to make is the difference between pardon me and forgive me. Suppose you accidentally back into someone at fellowship hour um, and you make them spill their coffee. You naturally say, pardon me or excuse me. You're, you're backing up, someone was coming at you and you step back and you knock their coffee over them. By this, you mean to say that you did what you did to them in a way that was entirely unintentional. It was completely unintentional. And they respond accordingly. Don't mention it, no problem. The accident was an accident. You see it was an accident. They see it was an accident. Everybody knows it was an accident. And so they extend uh, a cover for the excuse. They accept the pardon me. They accept the excuse me. So the accident was an accident, and it was therefore excusable. Now, you were responsible for the accident, but you weren't guilty. You're responsible for the accident. That You, um, you don't ex look around for someone else to say, pardon me. You're the one that did it. You're the one that bumped into them. So you're responsible for the accident. And so you accept responsibility by seeking their pardon. Right? Pardon me. Excuse me. You're responsible for the accident, and you accept that responsibility, but you were not guilty of plotting it on purpose. But suppose, instead of that scenario, suppose you looked across the fellowship hall, which we're going to build, Lord willing. <laughs> but not so you can sin in it. <laughs> Suppose you looked across the fellowship hall, and there across the hall you saw your enemy <laughs> swanking around over there, as pleased with himself as only a conceited Pharisee can look. And so you lowered your shoulder and ran straight into him, knocking him clean over, coffee and everything. Now, under such circumstances, and let's, let's say you did that, and you, then you did a little touchdown dance. <laughs> under such circumstances, the only reason you would say something like, pardon me, would be if you decided to taunt him on top of everything else. You, your, pardon me would be sarcasm. It would be twisting the knife. It would be uh, uh, kicking him in the head. In this kind of case, your behavior is inexcusable. All right? It's inexcusable. But that doesn't mean that nothing can be done about it. Suppose your friends saw what you did, and let's say they uh, took you aside and explained the way of the Lord more accurately to you. <laughs> That's not the way of fellowship. That's not what the sermon was talking about. Yes, he used that illustration, but not as a pattern. doesn't mean that nothing can be done about it. The inexcusable is not the same kind of thing as the unforgivable. But this... This brings us up short. 
And the reason it brings this up short is because of that surreptitious deal that we all have going. You accept my excuses, I'll accept your excuses. When the inexcusable is done to us, right? When the inexcusable is done to us, you go into business with a fellow Christian, you have some sort of business arrangement with a fellow Christian, and his incompetence or sloth or uh, dishonesty costs you $25,000. That's a big ticket item. Or your spouse is unfaithful to you. Or your child uh, erupts into a little volcano of ingratitude. Just all, you know, ingratitude. The behavior is inexcusable. And it is manifestly sin. Sin at the top, sin at the bottom, sin from front to back, sin from side to side. Everything about it is sinful. When that kind of thing erupts, if we've been living our lives with the patchwork of accepting and receiving and extending excuses, we are helpless. We don't know what to do. Because the person, let's say, let's say the person who knocked over the person he thought was a Pharisee, and people took him aside and, and remonstrated with him and rebuked him and admonished him. And let's say that he accepted it all. He, he took it to heart, and he understood the error of his ways. And let's say God gave gracious repentance to this person. And they bring him so he can bring him over to you so that he can seek forgiveness. He comes over to seek forgiveness and he says, Would you please forgive me for running into you, knocking you over? And and you say, Well, you're a Christian, so you say, Of course, I have to forgive you. <laughs> but that's the surface. There's other stuff going on underneath, right? You say you say the right thing, I forgive you. And then you say, because of the stuff underneath. But I'm just curious, why why did you do that? Now, why did you do that? Now, what happens here is that we are sometimes fishing for the excuse. We're asking him to say something like, well, I've had a migraine headache for the last three days, and I just lost my cool. Or I was up half the night doing it, and, you know, and I just, uh, you know, I don't know what came over me. Or um, I had way too much coffee this morning, and, you know, it can be pretty lame. And we will accept a pretty lame excuse just to keep us in excuse world. We like staying in excuse world because we know that sometimes our excuses are pretty lame. And we, and we, want, to, we want people to accept that coin. We want to, we want to be able to con- continue to uh, conduct transactions that way. But suppose he's been well instructed by the people who rebuked him. And he said, well, to be frank... Um, I, I knocked you over because I've been hating you for six months. I just, I just, and then there you were just acting like you belonged in church. And, <laughs> and so I decided to, I decided to take you down a few pegs. And, and, and my friends have explained to me that hate, that kind of hatred is wrong. But that was why I did it is I hated you and I wanted to hurt you. And I see that I did. Um, would you please forgive me for hating you, for hurting you, for wanting to hurt you and for knocking you over? And you go and uh, you ask for a minute to, to go deal with this. Why? Why do you have to go process this? Because you're telling yourself, I can't forgive that. He's telling me he did it on purpose. He's telling me that with his eyes wide open, he tried to do it to me on purpose. How can I forgive that? But see, this is the thing. That's the only kind of thing you can forgive. right? The other stuff that's inadvertent, the other stuff, that you can excuse that. But you can't forgive something that wasn't inexcusable. 
The thing that makes it in the thing that causes it to come before you in need of you extending forgiveness is the is the very fact that there was no excuse for it. And and when someone comes to you and just lets go of all excuses, like the prodigal son coming back to his father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. No excuses, absolutely no excuses. That's true repentance. And sometimes we struggle with it because he's trying to move us from the realm of excuses, where where we're fairly comfortable, to the realm of forgiveness, which is where Christians are supposed to live. So, but this is a fallen world, and things can even get a little bit more complicated than this. Simple, but complex. The sin part is complicated. The forgiveness part is straight up the middle. But there is another category. What if we don't have something that is purely wicked or purely accidental? Suppose for a moment that it's, that it's a mixed bag. Suppose for a moment that this guy has had a bad attitude. He has hated you for uh, months. But also suppose he's had a migraine headache for three days. And all, you know, all the excuses are there. The excuses are there. And the sin is there. The inexcusable thing is there. And then the extenuating circumstances are also there. Suppose it's a mixed bag. Yes, you snapped at the kids, but it was at the end of two days of a roaring migraine headache. Yes, you said some things to your wife that were rude and thoughtless, but she was the one who started the argument, and she's the one who would not let it go. And uh, you asked her three times to let it go, and she would not let it go. So, finally, you said some rude and thoughtless things. Yes, you you sent that email to your boss that you regret sending. But it was two in the morning, and the beer you'd had made you careless. So there's an extenuating circumstance. You offer that, and someone says, well, the beer part is a problem also. That's a separate problem. You made yourself care. Okay, but let's say there's some element of extenuating circumstances and some element of inexcusable behavior. And the way we live our lives, that is oftentimes where we find ourselves, is it not? So in this situation, there are extenuating circumstances. But we should all remember two things about this. The first is that we will tend, we have a tendency to stretch our legitimate excuse part to cover over the sin part. So we've got this mixed bag where there's the the extenuating circumstances part, and then there's the sin part. And we want to get the cover from the excuses to cover the sin also. We all have that natural tendency. But the only thing that can actually cover sin is the blood of Jesus Christ. The sin part cannot be covered by anything other than the blood of Jesus, because if it could, then Jesus, again, didn't have to die. But every person in this room, every last person in this room, provided you're descended from Adam, has this tendency. We have the tendency to want the excuse that we oftentimes have, yeah, I did have a headache, or yes, I was up all night, or yes, we want that excuse part to cover over the sin part. And when apologizing, we lead with the excuse. When apologizing, we lead with that excuse. Bob, sorry about yesterday. I had a long day, and I didn't really mean what I said. And Bob often responds in kind because he wants to play the same game when he needs to, He says, oh, well, because you didn't mean it, forget about it. Because you didn't mean it, forget about it. In other words, because the you who said those things was not the real you. The you who said those things, the you who did those things, was 
not the real you. Because that's the case, he can let it go. But the only reason people put up with something that lame is because they, they know that they're going to be in need of that process themselves sometime. Have you ever, um, have you ever seen someone in, a, in the grip of carnal reasoning apologize for something on television? Uh, the CEO of a corporation that got busted for something or uh, some politician caught in a scandal. How, do, how does he apologize? He says things like, um, the things that I did, that I take full responsibility for, the things that I did are not in accord with my core values. <laughs> yes, they were. <laughs> that's, exactly, that's why you did them. You were revealing your core values. When you, uh, um, be sure your sin will find you out. Right? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, Jesus says. So what happens is we want to say, I want to put some distance between me, the one offering the apology, and the thing that I did. There was this other creature there that did that thing. And so I want to distance myself from that. My core values are over, are, are over here apologizing. And this wretched creature, whoever he was, uh, that's not in accord with the virtuous person that I am. I remember years ago, uh, many decades ago now, where uh, there was a... A kid in jail in Lewiston. He, he um, killed his parent, murdered his parents, and he was in jail for having murdered his parents. And he heard via, via the grapevine that uh, that some of the kids in his high school class. He was a high school kid. Some of his kids in his class were talking about him. Surprise, right? And he wrote a letter to the editor. He wrote a letter to the editor, and he said, in the letter to the editor, I am basically a good person. In other words, yeah, okay, we've got this thing over here, but I am a good person because I am the one making the evaluation. I'm going to be my own standard. That is a pathological case, but all of us know what, what it's like to do that. All of us are tempted to do, to do that, and it's likely that we're tempted to do that kind of distancing between the real me the real me who loves virtue and the wrong me, the, the sinful me who is not to be really identified with me. But the sinful you is identified. It, that is you. And that's why you need to be forgiven. That's why you needed to go to the cross. That's why your essential you, your rebellious essential you, needed to be crucified with Christ on the cross. But in, the, in, in Excuseville, people want to say, oh, I'll put distance, I'll just put arbitrary distance between the you who's apologizing and the you who did those things. And because the you who did those things isn't the real you, I will let it go. That's one problem. We want the excuses to cover the sin part. The second problem, and this is a real one, the second problem is that we want our excuses to be way stretchier than our neighbor's excuses. We think that our excuses are way stretchier than our neighbor's excuses. And again, if you're, descended, if you're in this room and you're descended from Adam, this is the tendency. This is how the devil's going to come at you. You're going to see, because well, you're, you're aware of all your excuses, right? You're aware of that headache. You're aware of the pressures. You're aware of what someone told you and someone else told you and someone else told you. You're aware of everything that came down to the point where you erupted. When someone erupts at you, you're not aware of anything that happened. All you see is the final behavior. All you see is the offense. 
So you think, well, your, your excuses are stretchier than his excuses. His excuses have to be pretty lame because all you see is the end result. But remember, all they see about your behavior is the end result. That's all that they see about, of you. They don't know. Of any, and, well, in fact, you, you know that. You know that they don't see all those things, which is why you're tempted to lead with them. That's why you want to rush in there to explain. But as C.S. Lewis pointed out one time, the chances are excellent. Why? Because you're descended from Adam. The chances are excellent that our neighbor's excuses are way better than we tend to believe. Our neighbor's excuses are probably better than we would want to believe. And it's also true that our excuses are way lamer than we want to think they are. So we ought to budget for that. We, when we're seeking forgiveness, when we're receiving forgiveness from God, and we're seeking forgiveness from other people, and when we're extending forgiveness to, to other people, you want to know that your adversary is the excuse. And you want to be looking at your excuses there. You want to be looking at your excuses with a jaundiced eye. You want to be looking at their excuses with a charitable eye, while at the same time forgiving the inexcusable part. So, when we handicap the competition between us and our fellow Christians, we are not being nearly as objective as we think we are. When we are saying, well, I'm going to wait my excuses, I'm going to, I'm going to wait my sin, we tend to have our thumb on the scale. We tend to judge other people more strictly than we judge ourselves. Jesus talks about this kind of thing all the time. Judge not lest you be judged, for the judgment with which you judge, you shall be judged, in Matthew 7. This is why Jesus tells us that this is the gospel logic. This is the kind of gospel logic that he's talking about that I mentioned at the first. So what we want to do is realize that the golden rule is a gospel logic sort of thing. The first will be last, and the last first is a gospel logic sort of thing. Forgive and you will be forgiven is a gospel logic sort of thing. So... All of this is a variation on the golden rule. All of it is a variation on the golden rule. The basic Christian response is to forgive as we have been forgiven. In our text, the Apostle Paul is simply repeating what the Lord taught us when he taught us to pray. Every time we pray the Lord's Prayer, which we're going to be doing in just a few minutes, at the end of every message, at the end of every sermon, in our liturgy, we sing the Lord's Prayer together. Now, every time we pray the Lord's Prayer, we ask him to forgive us the same way we forgive others. That's what we're asking. The way many Christians live, the room actually ought to become a lot quieter when we get to that part. Do we, and the only reason we are able to sing it uh, is we are not, we've stopped reflecting on it. We've, we've done it so many times that we think, oh, the Lord's Prayer, we sing the Lord's Prayer. Isn't it wonderful to sing the Lord's Prayer? But when the Lord gave us this prayer in, in Matthew 6, this part of the prayer, forgive us as uh, uh, treat us the way we treat others, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. That's the one part of the prayer that Jesus circles back around on to give commentary on. We're going to consider that in a few minutes. But what are we actually asking for? When we say, Lord, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us, this is what we're saying. Lord, please doubt the sincerity of my repentance the way I doubt his. Lord, dismiss my excuses with a wave of your hand the way I dismiss his excuses. 
Lord, please keep a hidden tally so that if I ever sin in this area again, you can bring everything up again and throw it in my face the way I do, the way I do with him. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Given the attitudes that we often harbor toward fellow Christians, the words of the Lord's Prayer are words to choke on. Given the way Christians often treat other Christians, these are words to choke on. Why, why don't we choke on them? Well, it's because we've rubbed them smooth. We made them palatable with music. <laughs> right? We set it to a lovely tune. And now we can sing it without thinking about it. Lord, smash me like a bug like I want to smash him like a bug. Lord, treat me the way I treat him. Lord, mull over my offenses the way I mull over his offenses. Lord, have imag- please, would you please have imaginary conversations in your head with me, at the end of which I'm a devastated ruin. <laughs> the golden rule teaches us that we should do for others what we wish they would do for us. We should do for others what we wish they would do for us. This is in the same spirit, but there's a higher level of danger in it. Here we are asking God to treat us the way we treat our brother. If I give my brother an orange, he might give me an apple. But if I give my brother a stone when he asks for bread, and then I ask God to treat me in the same way, I may may find out that the stone he gives is one that could crush me. I can find out that this God can give a way bigger stone than my brother ever could. And why on earth would I ever ask for that? Why would I request it? Why would I set it to music? Why? That's just, I just don't want to do that, right? This is the parable uh, where the master has the slave, where he, he forgives the slave a kajillion dollars, right? He's, and the slave was going to be sold in, he was going to be sold off his wife and his children and family, sold off to pay the pay something toward the debt, and the master had mercy on him and just forgave him. And then the slave went out and found another slave and started to choke him for a much smaller amount. Now, how would, he, how would this first slave defend himself if, we called, if he had an opportunity? He would say, oh, I was forgiven this great amount, so I decided to do a sweep out of all the accounts receivable that I had, and then I could give something to the master who, kindly, who so kindly forgave me. But the master wasn't in it for the money. The master wasn't in it for the money. The master was setting an example. He didn't want the slave to pay him back. He forgave the money. The money was the forgiven part. He forgave the debt. He wanted the slave to imitate him. And so this slave got the wrong end of the stick on the illustration. Why? Because the illustration is a gospel logic thing. The master forgives the debt, and he wants the slave to go and do likewise. He wants the slave to become the same kind of person to the people who owe him money that he was with the slave. But the slave went out and said, no, I'm going to go squeeze these people for what they owe me so I can pay something back to my master. I can show him that I'm being financially responsible or whatever excuse he cooked up. But the master was very angry with that. And he showed... It demonstrated that the person who received forgiveness there did not comprehend what he was receiving when he received that forgiveness. And so this helps us address the question, how is this consistent with sola gratia? How is this consistent with salvation by grace alone? 
Jesus says, when he's commenting on the Lord's Prayer, he says, For if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive not men, if, but if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So if you refuse to forgive your brother, it's not the case that you're failing at earning your salvation. It's not like God said, here's the ladder up to heaven, and you climb the ladder up to heaven by forgiving other people. Forgiving other people is not the good work that you do or the good series of good works that you do in order to earn your way into God's good graces. No, but it's, what's the, what is the case is if you refuse to forgive your brother, you are revealing to the world and to your Lord in heaven that you have no understanding of what salvation by grace through faith actually is. You're demonstrating not that you had salvation and then it was taken away from you because you didn't measure up. What, what you're demonstrating is that you don't have any comprehension of what's going on at all. You, you say that you've responded to the gospel, but if you respond to the gospel, if you sign a little card or you go forward at a meeting or you grow up in the church and you've been baptized forever and you know, you've been, you're a professing Christian, but if you live a life of no forgiveness, if you live a life of no slack, no forgiveness, no grace toward others, then you're demonstrating that your profession, whether by water or revival meeting going forward, whatever it is, you're, you're demonstrating that you don't get it. You don't get the gospel. Because if you get the gospel, you give the gospel. If you get forgiveness, you you give forgiveness. If you receive forgiveness, the very nature of the case requires you to give it. So if you refuse to forgive your brother, you're revealing to the world that you have no understanding of what salvation by grace through faith actually is. And this brings us back to verse 32 again. And be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. And this is he's telling Christians to do this because, Christian, let's be frank, Christians might not. Right? He's telling Christians to do this because there are pressures that would prevent us from doing this. All right? Forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Now, there are complications, complications, and, and there are some thorny issues here. How, how can I forgive someone? Uh, let's say uh, it was lots and lots of money. Or how can I forgive someone if it was lots and lots of money and they're not sorry? How can I forgive someone if they haven't sought forgiveness? Because forgiveness, routine, ordinary forgiveness, is a transaction, right? When someone comes to you and says, I wronged you, I sinned against you, would you please forgive me? They're, what they're asking for is a transaction. They're soliciting from you a promise and, and if you forgive them, you are promising them that you're not going to resurrect this offense and throw it in their teeth the next, time, the next time something goes wrong in your relationship. So if someone loses their temper with you, and they come back and seek to seek your forgiveness, and you extend your forgiveness, then let's say six months later, they lose their temper again. And you say, you're, like, you are, you're always like this. You, do you remember last June when you did this before? And you bring it up and throw it in their teeth. Well, if you do that, now you have to go seek their forgiveness because you broke your promise. You promised that you wouldn't do that. That's what forgiveness is. So forgiveness is a transaction. A person seeks a promise, 
They solicited a promise. I was wrong. Would you please forgive me? You give them that promise, and that's the, the transaction is complete. That's the way forgiveness is supposed to operate. That's how it operates within the boundaries of a Christian community. But, and this is the important thing, this life is sometimes messy, and there are sometimes people who need to receive your forgiveness who have not requested it. They, they are still either too proud to admit their fault or they're too confused or too incompetent or whatever it is. They're too muddled up to acknowledge that they sinned in this way. So if someone steals your car, do you have to run out into the street and yell down the street after them, I forgive you? <laughs> no, it doesn't, it doesn't work that way. But how does it work? Do I, have to, do I have to forgive people who have not yet sought forgiveness? And the answer is yes and no. You can't complete the transaction that I was just talking about until they are willing to, to engage in the transaction. It takes two to conduct that transaction. You can't, you're pushing the buckle into the seatbelt, but you don't hear the click until you're good with each other. He sought forgiveness, you've extended it. You've sought forgiveness if you need to, and he's extended it, and, and the relationship is restored. That transaction is what restoration of relationship uh, depends upon in a Christian community. But there are times when the person is fully convinced in their own mind that they did right, or they knew they did wrong, but they're too proud to admit it. They don't want to, or they, they're afraid that if they admitted that uh, they were wrong in this case, that you would come after them in other cases, all sorts of, or they didn't sin against you, but they sinned against your kid, and you've got a mama bear thing going. You know, let's say there are all sorts of complications. So, what do we do? Jesus on the cross said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, Jesus, it, Jesus is not forgiving them there, but he's asking the Father to forgive them. He's asking the Father to forgive them, and he's asking the Father to forgive people who were obviously demonstrating no sign of repentance. No, they, were, they crucified him. They were do, they, a number of them were taunting, them, taunting him. And so Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. How does that part work? If the person is not seeking forgiveness, what you need to do is do business with God, where you complete, as far as, it's, as far as it's possible with you, as far as your end of it is concerned, you've forgiven them. You wrap the whole thing up in a package. You, you put your forgiveness for them in a box, and you wrap the box like it was Christmas, and you have the box sitting by your front door so that if they ever show up at your house, you've got it right there. You just you don't have to go hunt for it. It's not up in the attic. It's not you don't or you don't have to run out to try to get by it. You know, it's it's there and it's wrapped and it's ready to go. You are like the father in the parable of the prodigal son who's looking down the road. Right? He sees his son coming afar off. It says the father is on tiptoe. We that that parable I think is uh, badly named. We call it the parable of the prodigal son. It, some people call it the parable of the self-righteous older brother. I think it should be called the parable of the running father, the parable of the father who is eager to forgive. And was there, was there something to forgive? Yeah, this wastrel of a son. He gets, gets his father's inheritance, and he goes down the road, and he buys drinks on the house and spends it on uh, prostitutes. And the older brother says he, he, he does as bad a job with 
his godly father's inheritance as it would be possible for a loser son to, to it's as bad as it gets. And the father is got, has got that present by the front door, the fatted calf, the hired band, the party, everything is right there, ready to go. When the sun shows up on the horizon, the father doesn't have to think about it. He doesn't have to mull it over. He doesn't have to go in the back room and get grace. All right, you, you need to get the grace to forgive as soon as you're aware of the offense. That's when, the gra- that's when you get the grace. That's when you wrap the present. And in this life, might not be the, the person might not ever seek forgiveness. They might die before they seek forgiveness. They might move to another part of the country. They might die owing you an apology, owing you a visit where they seek forgiveness. But as far as you're concerned, it's all wrapped up. As far as you're concerned, it's all there. And this is where we have to circle back to our text. We must remember that Christ is all. Recall the words, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Every recipient of forgiveness needs to be eager, and I want to italicize that word eager, needs to be eager to extend it. Not just willing to extend it, not just, uh, okay, under duress, I'll do it because I'm a Christian, uh, you don't say things like, yes, I forgive you as a Christian, but I'll never forget it. <laughs> you know, you don't talk like that. You need to be eager to extend it. And if you cannot extend it to your brother whom you have seen, how can you receive it from God whom you have not seen? But we're convinced of better things concerning you. We're con- and why, why am I convinced of better things concerning you? If you want to be a member of a joyful, cheerful Christian community, and you're here, are you not? You're, you're, in, you're in the midst of a joyful, vibrant, happy, cheerful Christian community. If you want to be a member of a joyful, cheerful community, then you want to be a member of a community where these things are understood and routinely practiced. And you can't want everybody else to practice it, and you get you you do the free rider thing. You know, everybody else has to conduct forgiveness, and I'll just be a part of this cheerful uh, band without having to do it myself. Well, it won't be too long before their cheerfulness and their joy starts to irritate you, because you are out of it. You're you're trying to live in accord with the law of another realm. Christ's kingdom is characterized by this. This is what God wants. His people, this is what he wants our communities, our koinonia fellowship to be like. And that means that everybody needs to practice it. Everybody has times when they need to seek forgiveness. Everybody has times when they need to extend forgiveness. And we need to stop acting like something monstrous or strange or a blue comet happens when someone admits their sin. We have a traditional worship service. We have a liturgy that respects and honors God. But Koinonia Fellowship is not based on dressing up real nice. It's not based on a necktie and taking showers. It's not based on grinning at people and saying, praise the Lord. It's based on forgiveness. The bedrock, the bedrock of true, godly, joyful, consistent Christian community is this forgiveness of sin. Unless you've received forgiveness of sin and unless you extend it, You can't be part of this. And if you have, and if you do, then it's going to follow you everywhere you go. It's going to be characteristic of your life. Our Father in God, we thank you, praise you for your kindness to us. 
I pray as we consider these things, as we meditate on them, that you would be kind to us and help us to be mindful of what we mean when we say these words to you, the words that Jesus taught us to pray. This meal is not a dour meal. This is not a sad meal. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says, The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not communion in the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For those who know Jesus, this is a cup of blessing. This is a table of blessing. This is sharing in the blessing of God. How is it blessing? It proclaims the forgiveness of all our sin. Are you a sinner? Do you need cleansing? Then come. Jesus died for sinners. He died to make you completely clean. But how do we know that our sins are completely paid for? We know they were completely paid for because Jesus rose from the dead. This is a law of nature, in fact, a law of the universe. Completely innocent, righteous people cannot die. If Adam had jumped off a cliff right after he was made, he could not have died. I'm not sure what would have happened, but he could not have died because sin is what makes us susceptible to death. Even Jesus could not die until our sins were covenantally laid on him. Jesus went down into death by the weight of our sin. But when each one of those sins was paid for, when complete justice had been served, there was nothing left keeping Jesus dead. Jesus rose for the same reason most things fall down, gravity. This is why the Bible says that if Jesus is not risen from the dead, we would still be in our sins. But Christ is risen from the dead, and therefore our sins are no more. Our sins are buried in the deepest sea and can never be found. They are removed from us as far as the east is from the west. So are you baptized? Then come. Come to the table of blessing. Come with joy. And make sure your kids know that this is not the table of being good. This is not the table of you better not screw this up. This is the table of Christ risen from the dead. This is the table of we are forgiven. It's the table of relief and blessing. So come and welcome to Jesus Christ. In the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he gave thanks. So let's give thanks together. Our God and Father, we praise you and we thank you for Jesus we thank you for his body broken, his blood shed to make us completely clean. Thank you for this great blessing. Open our mouths now so that you might fill them with this good, these good gifts. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. What's the, what's the secret sauce of, of Moscow? What's the secret sauce of Christ Church? People ask this, maybe you're new, you're visiting, you're wondering. You said, actually, I came here to find out. It's real forgiveness. That's it. It's just Jesus. It's real forgiveness, though, and it's an utter commitment to have nothing with excuses, no deal-making, just forgiveness, just clean hearts, real joy, which is real community and real blessing. That's what it is. That's what you've received, so go and give it. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ the love of God the Father, the fellowship of God the Holy Spirit be with you all now and forever. And amen.